Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on self-development and sexuality in Australia. My name is Rog. Sex and cancer. If you think this doesn't apply to you, I'm sorry, but you're almost certainly wrong. Uh, About one in two of us, or maybe one in three of us, will have cancer ourselves at some stage in our lives. But almost all of us will have someone close to us get cancer, and so we'll find ourselves as partners or carers getting an intimate relationship with cancer one way or another. In this episode, my partner Tess and I invite another couple over for a game of Q&A around the themes of sex, cancer, relationships and intimacy and so forth. Uh, Drew and Tori, the other couple, just want to be referred to by their first names. It so happens that all four people in this conversation are polyamorous, and it's interesting to see how polyamory played into the cancer diagnosis and treatment process. To hint at what's coming up, let's just say that being poly wasn't at all a bad thing. This episode will also make a lot of sense to anyone that's got a chronic illness or perhaps a disability or some other health crisis. It's a pretty relaxed conversation since we're all feeling pretty comfortable with each other. As such, it's also a relatively long kind of a conversation compared to what I usually put together for you. I was originally planning on editing it down to something shorter, but there's some really touching golden moments in our discussions, and I realised it'd just be damaging the tone of the conversation if I sliced it down any more than I have. So, settle back and listen in to a conversation about sex and cancer and related things. Give yourself a gold star if you can hear the cat's bell in the background, maybe some clinking of wine glasses. Now, do I need to get a beer so you don't hear that? Oh, good oh no, no, that might be if you wait for a pause. That might be great. And it's, that might sound awesome. Yeah. It's called two, two, <laughs> what, two cancer couples walking to a bar or something. Yeah, two, um, two couples with cancer walking to a bar. Oh, all right, I best, I best uh, say that yes, please. Right. Okay, so. Right. So welcome to two couples with cancer walking to a bar. Um, so my name is Rog. My name is Drew. I'm Tori. My name's Tess. Hey gang, uh, thank you all for coming over and being willing to talk to this topic. Um, I'm going to open in just a second with the question of what is your relationship to this topic of like sex and cancer and relationship, etc. But I just want to, um, clarify the, the ground rules of how we're doing this tonight. So we're playing Q&A where uh, we take it in turns to ask a question and then everyone in turn answers and then we move on to the next person's question. And, um, and for transparency on that, because we are enjoying a beverage or two as we record this, um, I will be editing. So shall we begin? Yes, yes. let's do it. Okay, great. Um, so I'd like to start with the first question, um, which is just... Um, What's your relationship to this topic and what's your relationship situation in this room? Ah. Um, Over to you. So, uh, Tori and I are nesting partners, um, married, 11 years, um, been together, I don't know, 20-something? Yeah. Um... 
Yeah, I guess the relationship to this particular topic, I suppose, is that I had uh, a brush with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, eight eight years ago um, in 2012, I was first diagnosed, um, at 38. Um, Yeah, and I guess there's been a fair few changes around my my sexuality and sex positivity, my understanding of sex and gender and all sorts of things that sort of came out of, um, I guess, the aftermath of, of, of cancer and survival. Tori, do you, what's your, do you have a... More to add. What's your relationship to this topic? And okay, so so when Andrew was diagnosed as um, uh, having lymphoma, I was um, quite upset and stressed by this because as time began to unfold with with his with his treatment and all all the things that went with that, I, I found that I, I I took a new role. I felt that in a sense our relationship changed. And I was caring for him and I was looking after him and I had to be very strong for him. So it didn't, it only, like, overnight I felt that our relationship had shifted into this slightly different dynamic where I had to look after and be strong and all that sort of stuff. So relationshiping changed. Yeah, the role reversals or changes really. Yeah, yeah. I I think too. Once we got the diagnosis and they said this is the treatment, um, it was very simple. It was a case of following the steps that we were given, and and that meant, um, you know, in a sense, giving up any kind of personal uh, choice or even just uncertainty. We were very, very in the zone, so we just had to do what needed to be done. Mm. And that changed a lot of relaxed relating. So everything became then very formed by mm. what the regime, what the treatment regime required. Tess? I'm Tess. I was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer at the age of 36. Uh, I was told I uh, was lucky because uh, thanks to Olivia Newton-John, there was heaps of money in breast cancer and I was likely, even though I was possibly terminal, my chances were still good because all the money was in breast cancer. So uh, I was lucky for a different reason, you know, because of my stage three possibly terminal cancer. Woo! Um, So it's really interesting what people say. Um, I was working in sexuality already when I was diagnosed. So one of the first things I thought about was like, oh my God, what about my sex? You know, uh, what about my job? And then, so this topic, um, I am still like, I'm wearing compression stockings right now from my latest surgery. Like I'm still on treatment and my sexuality is still severely impacted from the endocrine treatments I'm on. So I'm very, very, uh, yeah, this is very dear to me. And also now I work in cancer and sexuality because Apparently no one in the world does. It's really strange. No one talked to me in the over two years of my cancer treatments now. Mm. No one has mentioned sexuality. Never got mentioned to me. Never got discussed with me either. Oh, other than the no, fact. No, wait. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. 
That sounds like a cracker of a next question for someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks, Tess. Over to me. Um, so, yeah, my name's Rog. Um, uh, I guess historically I've nursed my mum through uh, stage four something something and she recovered from that. Uh, so, yay. And then um, I had another close friend um, who had stage four brain cancer um, who died uh, a few years back. And then, yeah, Tess, you and I... Uh, we've never found language, but we are something approximating primary partners, main partners, something like that. Sure. Um, <laughs> more than a casual route. Yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> great. And we've been together for about like four, getting on five years or something. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, yeah, I really relate to what you're saying about relationship changing i guess is the right word from just being like smutty dirty amazing partners and relationship buddies and everything else to also having a carer and uh, patient role in that mix as well so i've been pretty carey over the last couple <laughs> of years and yeah. um very yeah yeah that's my answer um, yeah, it's my Drew, question. Got a question? So much to talk about. Mm. Such a huge topic. Mm. Mm. Oh, I don't. I know what I want to ask because it's related to what we talked about. Mm. To what just came up then. Um, I'm just trying to work out the best way to frame this question. We'll workshop We can yeah. brainstorm it if you like, if you want to. Well, I was thinking I'm, I'm interested in what was, how was it, well, what was the discussion about sex and mm-hmm. and its relation? What was the discussion about libido? Oh, oh there we go. What's that? Okay, well, that's, I suppose that's the question, isn't it? What was the discussion about libido when it, and, and sex at the at the at the time of diagnosis. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna step in here because, of course, I nobody spoke to me about sex. Uh, nobody in a in a like a medical role stepped in and said, "Okay, Victoria, you're the partner of someone going through cancer. We'd we'd like to talk to you about sex." Nobody, nobody did that except they gave me a fairly severe warning about having any unprotected sex. Because while Andrew was going through chemo, um, they said, you're going to have to be pretty careful because any output from his body will be tainted and dangerous with with chemicals. Um, So be be quite careful about that. And so there was this, yes, there was a sense of biohazard, but there was also, they also said, do not get pregnant while he is undertaking chemotherapy because there will be genetic and dangerous consequences of any kind of genetic material that could uh, be produced from such uh, from such a an event. So, and that really weighed very heavily on me. This this sense of toxicity and um, and dangerous kind of. Um, output uh, to the point where, you know, even where it was only a couple of days following chemotherapy, I think, or even less than a couple of days, it may have only been 24 hours after chemotherapy, they suggest the toilet needed to be quite safe in case you were still, you know, passing 
chemicals that would be dangerous, but it was it was really only a short period. Three or four that days, that, I vaguely recall. Them, right. Um, but this idea of, oh, be, be careful that you don't get pregnant, I, I must confess that may not have been how it was delivered, but that's how I heard it. Mm. That's how I heard it. Mm. Yeah. That's it. Mm. Wow, my, my answer is so similar. So I actually need to retract what I said before. When I say no one talked to me about it, I mean like I didn't get to have a proper discussion about it. Someone did tell me, like, there's a sex and cancer pamphlet if you go to this floor and find this place and there's a place where there's all these books and pamphlets and I'm like, I had to go find it myself. And then when I was having the chemotherapy induction meetings where I came back with that huge stack of warning and information stuff and the lists of side effects, um, the nurse, the chemotherapy nurse said to me, you are going to have to practice safe sex to protect your partner from harm because you're because of the toxicity and then and that just that is all I remember and I was so scared of of hurting you and my other partner Mm. um I pretty much really didn't want to engage intimately and I really regret regret not following that up I did like later down through the chemo line and I figured out that it just meant use barriers 40 up for the first 48 hours after infusion but for me, I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm dangering my, my lovers and my partners and I'm going to hurt the people I care about. And they even said, you know, put gloves and a mask on if you vomit and your partner needs to clean the toilet. So I was petrified. Like I had this, I was already off my tit, <laughs> stressed. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that was a really, that was all I had. That was, that was the communication. And I'm like, come on, Tess, you work in sexuality, bring it up. But I had so many other things. I just went, no, I'm just backing off because I don't want to hurt my, my partners. Mm. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, well, um, no, I got nothing. I mean, it wasn't really clear to the medical system that I was your partner. We were sort of keeping our cards a little bit hidden or just, I don't know, not wanting to get too much into the, the that mess with the medical folk. Um, but, yeah, no information. And I think I think we just had to kind of do the maths based on what they were saying. Uh, I feel like, in retrospect, I can see uh, a bit of a look in the oncologist's eyes, like as, uh, as he was, like, prepping you, prepping us for some of the stuff that was coming up. I feel like there was just a couple of things where there might have been, like, an emphasis or a look as if to say, oh, you guys are fucked. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> um, this, this won't work out well. Um, but never said as much and, and didn't give us any of the detail about, you know, why, why that might be the case. That makes sense. Yeah. I realise that none of us have really talked about libido and that was kind of your question, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. The, there was certainly no, like, your genitals are going to be untouchable, your libido will disappear. You won't um, be able to walk or wear pants for a month because of chronic genital pain. Yeah. Like, none and, of that. And you, Rog, will want to sort of keep your sexuality available but never pressureful. Or like, which should anyway be the case, but like just so much more intensely so um, with cancer. Like you don't want to turn it off, but you sort of don't want it there. And yeah, none of those conversations. We had to do the maths. Yeah. Thank uh, you for those, Anne. 
great answers. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. and, and look, yeah, and I don't even think I got the direction to go and pick up the leaflet from two <laughs> floors, to, two floors up, and and five rooms over, because weirdly your description of that is so spot on. Because like, no people would really give you the thing. They would tell you to go and help yourself from the from the leaflet stack yeah. somewhere. It's, it was it's a really that's a really interesting observation because mm. that really is a thing. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. So mm. that, that's my answer. I just really want to so, say what I've what I have heard from well, I think all of us in some way is that uh, there seems to be in the healthcare system uh, people aren't separating fertility and sex. Mm-hmm. And sexuality and fertility is like the same yeah. thing. Sounds like high school sex. Sounds like high school. Yes. School sex. Like high school. yes. <laughs> oh, let's talk about. I've been know, thinking like, about that. Yeah. Like, how do we how do we protect and avoid pregnancy? Yeah, and it's like no, 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 this is about my identity and my well being and my yeah. passion and my connection to my friends and family. And, it's and all like sexuality. Mental health. Mental health. Yeah. Sorry, Tori. Your question. So, yeah. Your question, Tori. <laughs> oh, okay. Um. <laughs> What am I curious about? I'm curious. I'm actually curious about the libido question because I I didn't know that. That's that's quite a revelation to me that you were feeling the the libido because we weren't really talking about it then. Um, and I at the same time was probably feeling libido as well, but not feeling like I could discuss it with you. So my my question is, how does how do how do people feel about needing needing release um but but finding that difficulty in communicating it to to other people mm, great question i need a little clarification on the question sorry yeah, it's More specifically, talk to libido specifically, like talk to pleasure and like what it was like to have pleasure changing. And Yeah. How, how did you feel about needing pleasure but communicating that adequately to others around you? Hmm. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's tough. I think... Luckily, we're very good communicators around sexuality and intimacy. It is kind of our job. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, we actually had – do you remember how we were having, like, the weekly check-ins where we would ask the same three questions, like, mm. how are you doing, how are you feeling as the patient or the carer, how, you know, how are you feeling about our sexuality and what do you love about this mm. partner, like, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and also with my other partner, you know, like I really, it was really tricky because, uh, I would say things like, look, like touch is everything to me right now, mm. but I, I cannot engage in the sex, mm. but the intimacy was my sex. Um, and we, we did have those discussions and it all made sense to us cause we all understand pleasure and sexuality, but, um, it didn't get rid of the guilt and the shame that I had around no longer being a sexual. Mm. I hate, I don't want to say that like sexual person. I'm, I'm doing that horrible inverted common comma thing in the air listeners. <laughs> um, and even though I knew that my partners were just so supportive and so on board and like, you know, it was just this constant test. You're going, you're, you're on chemo for fuck's sake. Like calm down, you know, but uh, yeah, the guilt and the shame was impossible for me personally. 
So I think I'm just really grateful for the structure that we set up. And also, you know, the two-minute game. My God. So I think, like, for me, it was more of an absence of the need of, for pleasure and it was more around the um, expectation and pressure on myself to want more and feeling no pressure from my partners, but it was all, you know, this. Mm. I, I think I was grieving the loss of my sexuality mm. because I was such a sexual person and then it just, and then I was just fighting for my life and every cell in my body was poisoned. I'm actually finding it harder now than on chemo. Sexuality-wise, by the way, the endocrine treatments have just, yeah, that's awful. That's my answer. Hmm. Mm. Thank you. That makes sense. No, it did. That's good. Um, it was very weird. It was. I feel like it was quite a long process for me of realizing. Uh, just exactly what was being taken off the table and what the impacts of that would be. And I would say that our relationship before cancer was delightfully, fabulously sexualized. So sex for us was um, like a hobby and something we put a lot of creative energy into and something we shared with others and something we took a lot of joy from. And I think I was in denial for a little while, uh, or maybe not denial, but confusion about what our relationship would look like with um, less or none of that. Mm-hmm. And then I think maybe I was in denial a little bit about, um, I, I think I was a little bit gung-ho and hopeful for a while of going, oh, it's all right, we're skilled, we're capable, we're diverse, we'll like work out, you know, if anyone can do this, we can do this. Um, I love you. <laughs> I was doing the exact same thing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, cool. And um, in, a, in a lot of ways we did, like as you say, stuff like the two-minute game and I remember we reflected a lot on, like thank God we're into kink and have other ways to be physically close and intimate that don't involve like arousal curves or even nudity or bodies that do any particular thing um and other weird creative ways to do like scenes and stuff that worked around uh the level of capacity you had or have um yeah then somewhere in there uh i was delighted to discover the rest of our relationship like what happens when you take away the sex is actually a great relationship that i really enjoy being in and cancer and being a carer forced us into a like a level of intimacy which wasn't so sexual but still uh, really important um and then i guess uh maybe um maybe where we can sort of see the we've started climbing out of that spot and maybe we can see uh some level of return on the horizon and so i really appreciate our skills and attention we bring to it in rehabilitating ourselves um <laughs> I really like how that's going. God, what was the question? Libido. We, yeah. we even... Oh, sorry. It was a hell of a change. Yeah, it was a hell of a change. It was a really wild ride mm. change. Mm. That's my answer. Mm, my turn. I, if I was to have gone through the experience as it, as it was today, my experience of the libido and sex and intimacy and touch would be completely different. Mm. You know, in the intervening time, I've learned a lot. 
some of the stuff I learned later, things like the two-minute game, things um, just the that sex isn't about penises in vaginas, mm. um, you know, that, that p- touch in and of itself is extremely pleasurable and allow yourself to be potentially open to that. And, and that probably, that might, it's the kink, you know, impact and sensation and all sorts of those things would have probably changed perhaps the way I viewed myself as a sexual being and my libido and how I, and how I engaged with my libido, I think. Mm. So very similar to Andrew's experience. I, I felt that when I was, um, before, before Andrew's diagnosis, um, I felt like we probably had a reasonable sex life. It, um, it when things were okay. I felt that I could get sex when I wanted sex. That my libido was in, in total. Um, uh, it was it was matched by by Andrews, and that that you know we were we were pretty happy. I think. Um, it's a long time ago. Um, but one of the things that I found, so, so a little bit like what Andrew's saying that he, he jerked off and stuff while he was going through his chemo, I, I've always been very comfortable and relaxed in being able to masturbate in my own time. And so I certainly did a lot of that while Andrew was going through his treatment. Um, but just a word about intimacy. I'm a mother and when my kids were babies, our, our, my libido has really kind of ebbed and flowed over the years, particularly while breastfeeding because you get all this amazing different hormones going through your body. And the, the, the wisdom that I've heard repeated by experts is that um, you actually go off sex a bit while, you're, while you've got babies and you're breastfeeding them because it stops you from racing out and conceiving more before you can properly look after the ones you have. And I don't know that this is true. <laughs> Um, but I, but I found that, that particular group times of feeding the children and I had three kids in like four and a half years. And so I spent, um, nearly seven years either being pregnant or lactating. And let me tell you, that really does, that does take a lot out of your libido. Um, so when Andrew, actually, oddly enough, when Andrew was diagnosed, I found myself almost fitting back into that early parenting model of caring for babies and and breastfeeding them and caring for them and and you know while he was sick I guess I felt in a sense the intimacy that was there was was in the same kind of intimacy that I felt towards my children um you know caring for them in the night I remember even a couple of times when uh, just after Andrew had had chemo there were a few things we had to watch for you know difficulty in breathing um, you know, there are a few kind of uh, warning things that they, they tell you. And there are a couple of times I'd wake in the night, and I used to wake in the night all the time and feed the babies. My goodness, I lost years of sleep feeding babies through the night. But I remember waking in the night and putting my hand on Andrew just to make sure he was still breathing. And so there was that kind of different intimacy, almost like the, the mother um, caring for my baby in the night to make sure that my baby's still breathing and that my baby's still alive. Um, and that 
completely changes the sexual dynamic that you would have with somebody. So I still had the libido, absolutely, but my sensation of libido with regard to my husband significantly changed. Um, And I felt that sense of intimacy and closeness, but it was very similar to the intimacy and closeness that I would feel for my babies. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's my strange Age play anyone? (laughs) That was, that was amazing. Like I so related. I'm just going to like speak privately, like carer to carer for a second (laughs) and the the patients can just tune out. Yeah. Yeah. I so relate. Like I, I have not been a parent and I'm not going to be a parent. And I just went, holy fuck, that's a bit what it's like. Like I know that thing of like testing to see if they're alive in the night and like having that little moment of just like, how's is this my sex object or is this, it's different? Mm. Yeah. There's also, Mm. there's a strange thing too about being awake in the middle of the night. And I know people have insomnia, have have these experiences a lot, but my experience of being awake in the night is often because I'm caring for someone. And so the number of times I would get up in the night to feed the baby back to sleep, um, there's a special kind of intimacy of that moment in the middle of the night where you feel like you are so alone. You are the only one awake in the world mm. and you're putting your hand on your baby or your partner, um, seeing that they're still breathing, that they're still alive and it's dark and you feel alone and you feel incredibly connected to them as well at the same mm. time. Mm. There. So I guess I'll uh, I'll lighten it up. <laughs> uh, does anyone want a wine glass while I'm up? Do any of the listeners want a wine glass? <laughs> oh, no, like I'll crack another beer, please. Got it. What were what were? It's too short. Like it's too broad to say. You know what were the hardest bits around sex and cancer for you as a carer or a patient? I wanted to kind of dive into like shame and guilt and fear and like the things that our culture like if we'd had sex education what what would have been like to, how, how do i make this make sense no it makes sense to no, me. it makes sense to me so i think i don't think it's going to make sense for the listeners what what's what am i asking out, out of that experience of sex and libido through cancer what have you come out of that that feels shameful to you or that was difficult or shameful at the time? Yeah, like what, what are the standout things that were really, really challenging? Like, and, I, and I really do want to talk about things like shame and fear because there's so many societal and cultural miscommunications around what sex and sexuality and relationships actually are. Um, and I feel like I, I guess I may be fishing for a, a bit, but, yeah, I'm really curious to know mm. if anything... I've got two examples that come to mind. Um, There was a lot that went incredibly well and that we do incredibly well, but somewhere where we were on like the, on the path of realising just how much had been taken off the table for us, I I can't even remember the time, but there was a time that we tried for something Mm. and we're just like, nah, no chance. Nah, we ain't doing anything like that. On, on this particular evening. We didn't say anything about it at the time and we haven't spoken about it, um, but just the the look of, oh, I really wanted to and we tried and we can't and no one's wrong here, no one's no one's at shame or whatever, but um, 
just that sense of sadness. Mm. But, yeah. So that's one just mm. moment. Um, and then there was another moment, like, because we are poly, non-monogamous, we have other partners. Um, I think I think there's an experience a lot of people have when they move into non-monogamy, which is the first time they have great sex or just sex with someone else, someone other than their primary partner or something like that. And I think most people have a little moment of guilt, like, am I really allowed to do this? Is that okay? And so, like, that for me was a long time ago, like 15 years ago. But, yeah, there was a time where you were just, like, absolutely out of it, unable to move in so much pain and on so much meds. And I was off on some, like, hedonistic indulgent date with someone else. Um, And... Normally, when I'm on dates with other people, it brings me a sense of joy to think of other partners. Mm. Um, on this occasion, it was nuanced. Like, it was very sad to just be like, oh, you can't do this at the moment. I'm so happy that you were getting laid. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what a relief. <laughs> it, would have been, it would have been the dumbest thing to shut down that part of my life and have both of us feeling angsty and guilty in the absence of it. Mm. Um, But at the same time, like any part of me that's still in shame around, you know, cheating or lying or affairs or, you know, only unethical people get into non-monogamy, like all of that stuff just Mm. eats at those moments when you're so incapacitated. Mm. Can I just say that's really interesting as someone who at the time wasn't non-monogamous and is is now, but that, that... idea of um yeah feeling guilty for having that pleasure while you oh, that's that's a really interesting that's almost yeah dealing with the conversion or the lack of or whatever's going on around that it would be really challenging i imagine um it's funny because yeah. it's usually I think most people would expect it to be the other way around, like that I would have the problem with you going mm. out and getting laid, but I was like, can you just go, go get laid? <laughs> yeah. mm. um, for me, I think like in terms of the shame, shamey stuff, I think the shamey stuff for me it's a little bit what I like what I described earlier. It was about feeling like I was some toxic beast, you know, that um, that nobody could touch or or go near for periods of time, and that I kept myself away. You know, I was you know I was frightened of the kids going near the bathroom. You know, for me that was probably the biggest shameful feeling, and I was just fucked like. Fucked. I would have days where I was I was okay, and then I'd have days where I couldn't get out of bed, um, yeah. and I might get out for an hour or two, mm-hmm. and then I'd be like, "That's it. I'm done for today." Um, and and so not having the energy, not having the con- you know feeling like is any contribution from me, and that's difficult, you know, like in a um, in terms of a household situation with three kids, you know, that I had nothing to contribute. Um, that was difficult to be, to give up, you know, in a kink context to be, to be subbing and be, <laughs> and having to give up everything and give up control 
and 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 basically be yeah and just be 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 exist and allow stuff allowing all the things to happen you've sort of got to submit to your health and submit to the medical system I yeah call, i called it being a slave to the medical system so this is this is one of the questions that i've been wondering about and i don't know whether someone maybe gets to ask it before me or not but where does consent fit into 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 this and where does it fit like in terms of betty's wheel of consent where do all these things land because this bookmark that question yeah, yeah and and by the way listeners if you're thinking about getting into kink or bdsm we <laughs> promise that submission is normally a lot more fun than yeah, and it's also consensual. Non-consensual submission to chemo. So here's a take home. Good sex shouldn't be like cancer. No. No. Nice. Oh gosh, shame. Shame. I you know what? I don't have a great uh, recollection of of feeling shame while while we were in the process of the treatment. And, you know, I just remember putting my head down and feeling like I was doing a job. I was looking after the kids. I was doing my work. I was looking after Andrew. I was following. I felt a little bit guilty that I was jerking off every now and then, but I didn't really right, feel... I was jerking off in the bathroom too. <laughs> we should have done it together. Exactly. If we know that, we would have... We only realised... In hazmat suits. <laughs> I mean, I really... Which is a whole other kink. Exactly. So I feel a bit disappointed that I uh, I could have done all sorts of... Be as a kink. I should yeah. have done some great things. We could have done some really good things, actually, couldn't we? But anyway, um, what I did feel a bit shameful about afterwards was that after the treatment was finished and Drew was feeling great and feeling much better, um, I felt a bit hard... I felt really a bit embarrassed and a bit shameful that I couldn't progress out of my my role as carer I actually felt I actually felt a a lag in moving on after your your cancer and I felt that after you started to build your body back up again and you were clearly feeling a lot better and more energized and more alive that I felt like I was still stuck back in being the person that looked after you. So I, I remember feeling a bit a bit embarrassed or a bit yeah, a bit ashamed that I couldn't quite I couldn't follow you in your journey afterwards. Mm. Um, because the, the treatment for Andrew's cancer in the second instance that he had it was really short and sharp. It was just a it was really just a month and a bit of treatment. Um, no. <laughs> I'm, by the way, I'm furiously shaking my head okay, here. Okay, Andrew's it's shaking his head. Yeah, it's, because it, I, it was I, actually three months plus the month in hospital. Yeah, okay. So maybe, in, maybe I'm so imagining. In, in one version um, of reality, it was quite short. Yeah. Well, well compared to the first. So, so, so Andrew had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Andrew's first cancer experience was six months of treatment and then, a, a, you know, a month Some of radiation. radiotherapy. Yeah. And then when his cancer came back, it was it was uh, two months of chemo and then a, a month in hospital, basically. So it was a comparatively a much yeah. shorter experience. And mm. once that was done, there was nothing more to do. In fact, all the health people were like, that's it. If it comes back now, ooh, we don't geez, know what we'll do. <laughs> we don't know what we'll do because that's it. That's all we, we can know. do. 
So, like, the re-sexualising was... Yes, was really tricky because I felt that Andrew was starting to become more like himself again it's and weird. I wasn't. It's weird you got to shut it down and then turn it back on. Yeah. yeah. So, I remember feeling quite, uh, yeah, a bit ashamed that I wasn't able to keep up with his rebirth. I felt Andrew was re- was being reborn after all the treatment and I wasn't quite there yet. I still felt like I was his parent carer type character. So that that was a bit frustrating and a bit yeah, I felt a bit of shame in that respect because I wasn't I felt like in a sense I wasn't giving you what you needed. Hmm. Hmm. It's mind blowing that I'm so sorry to say, I don't want to use the word short, Drew, but I'm two years and a quarter and I'm still on treatment and it's mm. and I've had seven surgeries, mm. five weeks of radio, six months of chemo, I'm a year and a half into hormone treatment. It's crazy. Cancer's so different for everyone. Um, I, I had so much shame around... I put a lot of pressure on myself, like, come on, Tess, you're a sexuality educator and clinician. You should be doing better. I was doing that to myself. Like, I should be having so much sex because I know all about it. Um, And it was really hard for me to just, uh, like, sit in the struggle and be like, hang on a minute. Like, I am pumped full of poison. I have two drain tubes coming out, one in my hip, one in my breast, like I can't bend over, I can barely walk, I have a walking frame, you know, like, but I felt like I had should brain, you know, I should be better at this. And then that was kind of my light bulb moment of, wow, cancer just fucks it all. (laughs) And with our knowledge and with the skills we have, like we really stepped up, but um, I still had so much shame around not doing better and struggling so much and even now like with the pain that I've got and the fatigue um the brain fog I love it how I just vagued out while I was trying to remember (laughs) brain fog oh you know like I'm a subhuman and I and I yeah like there's this shame of I should I should be faking it better like my whole life is faking it I pretend that I'm doing okay and I'll do like I'll have a good good moment like this and then I'll be out you know um and there's just like this expectation i think that i put on myself rather than maybe society i didn't bother telling anyone in the clinical system that i was non-monogamous when i had my other partner would come to appointments she was just treated as a friend Mm. um everyone just made that assumption um which was a bit shit for her Mm. and i felt really awful but at the same time i had shame around like i don't want to be told i need an sti test just because i have two people that i love like this is you know so there was a lot of shame around pretending i'm not queer and oh my god shame body shame boldness shame pain shame shame for being shameful (laughs) that's my answer (laughs) thanks great answers great questions um, halftime check-in. Hey there, listener. I'd like to make you a little proposal. I love making this podcast for free because it helps me spread the word about sex positivity. But I could use your help in spreading the word just by sharing this episode if that's not too absurd. 
For every 10 stories that you listen to, please recommend it to someone that might like it too. <laughs> this is not a real contract, for you got no say. I would if I could frame it some other way. And if sharing's not for you, that's fine. There's nothing to do. Please listen without guilt to this podcast I built. Popping microphone back on. That's working. So welcome back to Two Couples with Cancer Walk Into a Bar. Um, that's my question. Um, help me out. Um, I, I don't want to go to... Why do you think the information and education you get from the system is as bad as it is? Or what worked for you, for like for your relationship or whatever? Or um, what advice do you wish you were given or what advice would you give to someone? I feel like that would be good towards the end. Mm. So maybe, maybe it would be like, why is it as bad as it is? Mm. Yeah, I like that question. Why, right. is there, why is there a lack why of Why is there such a gap? So, yeah. assuming, if you agree that there is a certain absence of information and certainly sex-positive information um, at the start of your cancer journey, um, why do you think that's the case? True. Just don't get pregnant. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, we joke about that, but I think that's. I think that is... I think that's the mindset that's, that... People, professionals, teachers, everyone in society treats sex with. It's such a taboo subject that people really don't want to talk about it. People don't like talking about it with their own kids. Uh, I think that's, um, I think that's obvious from having, you know, discussions with my own friends with teenage children about the level of discussion that they have with their own children about sex and not just sex in the biological sense because that's how the medical system treats it like in terms of sex and cancer and relationships and cancer and sex it's it's always treated as a as a biological function hmm. i think that is my answer thank you i think um medical specialists uh think about problems to be solved they think about health as a specific challenge. And so we met the most incredibly clever people who knew how to deal with lymphoma. And that was their expertise. And that's what they did exceptionally well. And even the oncology nurses in the uh, um, the day centre where you were getting chemotherapy, they knew their stuff so well. They would sit and talk to us about nausea. They would sit and talk to us about... Um, a bone pain that would come from the neutrophil uh, treatment that you were having. So they knew all about the symptoms and how to fix them. So I, I think there's a great problem-solving mindset that, uh, that comes into health. They don't tend to think so much about the, the less specific stuff. Um, they leave that to the social workers. And so if you're in a hospital and you're dealing with a medical condition, they focus on the medical condition. They don't worry so much about the other stuff that might be going on in the background. And that's a shame because mm. we really want people to be well and healthy and perhaps they'd be better if, if people were asking questions about touch 
and asking questions about meeting physical uh, needs, etc. While while people are sick, so so I, I don't want to I don't want to put any downer on the exceptional skill of all the incredible doctors that were trying to fix your lymphoma because they were amazing. But they were less concerned with the softer stuff, you know, how are you coping? And at one stage, actually, Andrew did seek the assistance of a psychologist who was attached to the hospital. And he was really hard to pin down, or she was really hard to pin down into into um, uh, an appointment. And her response to, to you when you said, gee, it's been hard to get you for an appointment, she said, yes, most people in the cancer ward are deeply traumatised and I'm very, very busy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, so, and so it's, it, it became kind of frustrating in a sense because you start to assess your own needs with the, rel- with the context of other people perhaps needing more help than you. And oh. so, so it was like you're, a, a pretty blunt message of sex doesn't matter what you're complaining about. So. Well, exactly. Um, at, at one point, Andrew was in a ward when he was in uh, getting in inpatient um, chemotherapy. He was in a ward with four other, three other people, and they were elderly and they were very, very ill. Um, and in fact, one woman used to sob constantly. Oh. She would just be lying in her bed crying, and so it's very hard to feel that your needs around sexuality and connection and wanting more information about that, it's hard to feel that they're valid in the face of such suffering that others might be going through. So I think there's a a bit of that that goes on as well. And that's me. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like I feel like my treating team were keeping me alive, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like so they're they're focused on my survival, not quite my living. Mm. Um, and I, I want to back you up and just say I am so grateful I got cancer in Australia and I have the most amazing clinicians and treating team. Like they blow my mind and the support I've had is amazing. I can't believe how many people have cancer. Like I see how busy everyone is. I wait two hours in a waiting room because it, there's just more and more emergencies, more surprise people, more... You know, like, and I just, I, I, I'm in awe of how much work everyone does. So I get that sex takes a backseat, you know, like it makes sense. But um, I also feel that there's just, we don't have an education in school. I'm an occupational therapist. I'm trained like at university. We do sexuality training. It's part of my job. Sex is a functional activity of life. But other OTs don't address it because they don't know what to say. When I imagine myself in the shoes of a like anyone on the medical team, anywhere from yeah, um, to ask a question like that, like "Hey, would you like any information about sexuality in your relationship?" You would have to regard yourself as well informed in that area. And the number of people in the world who will put their hand up and say, yeah, I'm well informed about sex. Hell yeah, I'm across that. It's like such a small number of people. It's almost no one, even those of us that work in the field, almost none of us will put our hand up and say, yeah, we're in a position to talk about that. Um, So, yeah, there's that. I think there's also, um, if I imagine being uh, part of a medical team, 
Um, I would worry that some clients would think I was cracking onto them mm. and it would be boring on sexual harassment for me to ask the question and be invasive. And wow. Yeah. Some other clients, um, just let me catch my, my thoughts here. Would that be, can I ask you just in terms of just interrupting momentarily, would that be a gender-based thing in relation to how you feel about asking those questions? Yeah, I think, I think maybe, perhaps, yes. Like if, if I was a male presenting medal member of a medical staff team, I would be very reluctant to ask a female presenting person, mm. especially someone younger than me, mm. um, in the most respectful of tones, mm. I would be very reluctant to mm. ask those questions. And then if I flip the genders, these, these are generalisations, mm, yeah, yeah. so they won't be true across the board. If I flip it, um, under different circumstances, um, uh, I, I would worry that the client or the patient would think it was an opportunity to uh, crack onto me or, like, invite a whole bunch of inappropriate questions and open a can of worms that was going to be really hard to shut yeah. down. So there's, like, a whole bunch of reasons why I wouldn't want to bring it up. Even if I was, tra- if I was trained in that area, I would know how to handle those problems. But um, You've got male gynaecologists and female urologists, you know, like, it's not... Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, so if we strip the gender yeah. out of it, yeah, yeah, there's like a couple of reasons why a person might not want to offer that advice. Um, you know, being inappropriate, being being treated as harassment, or being treated as an offer. There's like a whole lot of reasons. And um, yeah, I guess like like zooming back from that, I totally agree with everything you've said um, about. Well, they're there to keep you alive, and the Western medical system is you know pretty good mm. at that. Um, I'm still here. They are. The, the system is often yeah. mindful of, for instance, your need to work, obviously, and your need to family. And not far behind that, they're able to be a little bit more open around some of the other things that, in my opinion, are pursuits similar to sex, such as, like, if you're massively into food or sport or something like that. I think sex is very comparable in terms of it's a hobby, it's something that's good for you if you do it in balance, it takes advantage of the senses you've got, it's something you can do with other people, Uh, you don't have to do it except for a little bit now and again for survival. So all of those things are in the same category, but two of them, like sport and and being a foodie, um, you can talk about with the medical staff. So there is something particularly tabooy and shaming around sex. It was very OT of you, that perspective. (laughs) <laughs> cool yeah and i think that's my answer mm. i just want to can i just do a disclaimer of like if Your anyone feels like we're disrespecting the healthcare professionals that have done such an amazing job that's not the intention we're acknowledging a gap in the system mm-hmm. and that's a societal cultural thing yeah not being vindictive about the amazing care oh, yeah. that we've received nice. mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, because I'm pretty glad to be alive, and I really love my training team. <laughs> yeah, let's all let's all like have a little cheers yes, to medical treatment. <laughs> to Western medical treatment. Yeah, thank you yeah. for keeping us all alive, people. Mm. <laughs> yes. Your question, Drew. How do you feel the can- cancer has impacted on your relating? longer term so so removing it from the immediate reaction to treatment and and whatever how is what's been the long-term impact on your relationship to sex and relating as a result of diagnosis and treatment gosh 
What? Just a small one there, Andrew. Yeah, yeah that, it's a very that's a broad subject. That's, that's so. a really big topic, and I and I think there's there's several answers. There's there's the immediate answer, like what happened in the immediate aftermath, and then there's what happened as time went on, and and I think um, thinking about myself, I I feel that in the short term. I had a lot of trouble adjusting to you not being sick anymore. That that was that was difficult. It was a big shift for me. Um, and eventually, when I adjusted to that, there was incredibly huge ramifications to to our relationship, and brought on partly and mostly by you deciding that you wanted to try some different things. In our life, and that that had an, a massive effect on on our lives, um, and still is having a huge effect on our lives. So, the couple of things. First of all, I feel um, I feel prepared to deal with life catastrophes <laughs> in a in a weird way. Um, Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Got your, got your COVID, whatever. I, I, in a, yeah, and in yeah. fact, in a sense, the COVID situation at the moment has really brought back a lot of stuff about dealing with cancer and dealing with Andrew having cancer. In terms of the relationship being, um, one of the biggest things for us was that, that, that Andrew decided, well, ha- had some curiosity after being in remission for a while to, to try an open relationship. And that was a very big shift for us. Mm. So, so, and I think that was really strongly affected by the cancer situation. That was something that you were trying to, you were, you, you know, I, I feel like Andrew was trying to re-imit, reimagine uh, what, what his relationships were like, what life was like. And so that had an, an enormous effect on what we what we ended up doing. Um, in a weird way, the fact that we that we developed an open relationship. In a weird way, what I was actually thinking about was what would happen if one of us died and left the other one alone. How could we? How could we protect and nurture the other partner while we weren't there? And one oh. of the things that opening a relationship allowed for us was this idea of providing somebody else for our partner if something was to happen. So I think this feeling of um, of mortality, this, this, this fear of mortality, knowing that eventually someone is going to die, um, changed the way that we viewed our relationship and changed the way that we approached relationshiping. And that's a big topic, but that's that's mm. I think where I'll leave it there. Thanks. It's it's in, it's hard because I'm actually probably at the hardest part of my cancer experience sexually since diagnosis. So that's that's a tricky one because mm. I thought the I thought chemo would be the hardest part, but this is. Um, it's 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 interesting. Um, there have been times where I've just completely given up and then there are other times where, you know, I designed that six-week touch program to rebuild our intimacy. It's like, oh, God, I'm so sorry you're dating a sex OT. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you poor thing. 
Um, I consented. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's been really great in the sense of like I've I've really like orgasm was never really the goal, but now because it doesn't really exist because of the medications and treatments, I've actually just really managed to really drop into the lack of agenda and like the amazingness of just pleasure. And, and, and I've always loved that, but this has been like, wow. Yeah. Like there really will not be like a, a thing that happens apart from last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that's been really lovely. And, and also I think, um, the God, the way I relate to people having a body that does, like 10 to 20% of what it used to do. And my brain, I have all these things that I want to do, but I can't. And I have cognitive dysfunction as well as physical dysfunction. But um, it's a huge lesson in me just going really slow and being better at my boundaries. Like I actually just can't respond to your messages for a week. So, you know, like that kind of thing or no, I'm just not up for it rather than pushing myself to, you know, like I need to connect with this partner. It's been a really long time and just saying, you know, I'm out for a bit. I'm in a hole, you know, that kind of thing. So my communication is getting heaps better. It can always get better, right? You know? um, yeah, it's a tricky one because this is, this is the hardest part for me. I'm really looking forward to maybe becoming slightly more of a human I'm at that point where I'm doing quantity of life versus quality. I've been thinking about stopping my treatments and I know I'll get cancer again and probably die, but I would like to live. You know, this is where I'm at. So mm. for me, it's about the connections with the people that I'm with. That's really important to me rather than like what else is there. Mm. So I'm at that point. So this is kind of where I'm at. Mm. So I guess how has cancer impacted my relating is that I'm realising that that's all that matters Mm. And I would like to again. <laughs> Can we take a breath on that, please? Because <laughs> I think that is. Uh... I'm going to cry. Mm. <laughs> so good. Cancer fucking sucks. Your answer. Um. Well, two things. One is, like, it's brought us closer together. Mm. Enough said. That's <laughs> Point two is um, it's reminded me that it behooves one to plan for the ageing process and the fact that bodies change, which is something I already knew. Um, but so much wisdom into diversifying one's sexual portfolio mm. uh, away from the standards and the stereotypes mm. uh, to include other things. And I um, hope it doesn't seem callous, but there's definitely elements of um, the creativity that something like cancer or even like a, mm, stuff that cancer has encouraged us towards. And even we've had some really creative weird dates because of coronavirus and lockdown. Mm. And, uh, like, I can't say they've been bad. Uh, yeah. Different doesn't necessarily mean no. they have to be bad. No. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the experience has reminded me of that, which is something I already knew. It's one of the reasons I like kink, because there's so many ways to connect and be powerfully intimate. Mm. Uh, Yeah. Mm. True. Your answer. Um, I really, what Tess said about, yeah, about relationships, about intimacy with the people around you, I think that really resonated with, with me just in terms of that was the thing that really struck a chord for me when I had time to... look back at, you know, when I, a little bit further down my path of, of rehabilitation, mm. um, probably a few months in, I was starting to feel this incredible, and again, you know, this is, this is the thing, I didn't even know this was a fucking thing, mm. that my libido just fucking absolutely went berserk, um, and I wanted to have sex with all the people all the time. And that was a feeling I hadn't encountered before. And it's probably a feeling that, you know, maybe some of the people listening to this podcast will also feel, and they'll be wondering what the fuck is going on. Um, A little bit of a clue I remember was given to me by one of my colleagues who had Crohn's disease and bowel cancer. And he just, an offhanded remark he made, which was something like, oh, you know, it was almost like a warning was this kind of idea of, well, you know, there's these statistics about, you know, X amount of relationships don't survive cancer in, mm. and, not, and not through mortality but through recovery. <clears throat> wow. And um, I, I can't remember the number. It was like 60-odd something percent in, in that personal relationships end up collapsing up at some point within three or four years after Treatment of completion, former relationships are no more. And um, so that was interesting to learn that and then and then have this experience of incredibly magnified libido and desire like I had never, t- like I had never felt before. And I actually took, you know, I, I went and found myself a psychologist to go and talk to about it because I was like, what the fuck is going on with me? This is like... I'm going to do something bad here if, if like, mm. if this continues. And, um, or bad, but, you know, ethically unsound. Mm. Um, we, hadn't dis- we hadn't discussed ethical. No, 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 no. No, so. And that's right, because when you're monogamous, it's cheating, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, yeah. So, um, yeah, I actually, so I went and some help. And, actually, and, and the psychologist actually again, hit me with numbers, something like 75% of people who recover from a terminal illness uh, have this have in significantly increased libido. And, in fact, it's repeated wow. often in the survivors of people who die from cancer. They have a similar effect. And it's, it's actually the rejection of death. And his description to me was sex is life, and not death, and that's what people desire, and that's wow. the where their body goes to mm. after after this experience. And I was like, because I was like, what the fuck is going on with like fingers crossed, Rog? 
Um, so, so yeah, I took that and it was like, that was really interesting. That was an interesting thing to learn. And, um, it made me feel less weird. Like I, like this, Mm. what was going on with me? So yeah. And that, that provoked some, some introspection and many more discussions with that particular psychologist who, um, who helped me kind of navigate a path through what it was that I perhaps wanted to do. Um, yeah, that, that, that provided a, a disc- yeah, began a discussion about open relating between between Tori and myself because you know I was feeling like I wanted not just Tori's connection but the connection with all the people and and in a genuine, intimate and honest way mm. that didn't that wasn't inhibited by the rules that we all put around stuff and I think when when you're sitting there in those moments with cancer, you know, you start looking at your life and wondering how, you know, like, oh, these rules and, and constraints that have been on me and around us and on everything, what the fuck does that all mean while I'm sitting here? Um, yeah. means nothing. I'm, you know, let's, let's go and do the things that I want to do and forget the fuck about, um, about what, everyone else tells me is possible or is not possible. Mm. Mm. Nice. Mm. That's my answer. Nice. (laughs) Howdy, listeners. If you or someone you know is dealing with cancer, then listen up for a second. Tess, in the 12 or so months since we recorded this episode has gone on to develop a full six-week online course pitched at couples that have been through cancer treatments and are wanting to reclaim their intimacy and desire. Tess is a sexuality clinician and educator, a qualified occupational therapist, and as you've heard, also has first-hand experience with sex and cancer. They use neurological, psychological and physiological approaches to address libido, body image, capacity for pleasure, and intimacy issues. The course is, of course, for couples of any gender, orientation, age, and type of cancer. You can find the course through Tess's website, connectabletherapies.com, or there's a link in the show notes that will take you directly there. So that's a six-week online course for couples that are wanting to reclaim sexuality and intimacy after cancer, and the link is in the show notes. Tori. Tori, your Questions. Um, what do you wish you knew? What? So, so now mm. you've been through a bit of a journey. You've, you've yeah. had lots of experiences. What do you wish, if, if you could look back and, and speak to yourself, Mm, okay. At the start, what would what do you say? Take all the drugs. <laughs> Don't worry about more pills. Just take more pills because it's hell. <laughs> you can never have enough laxatives. <laughs> oh my god! Sorry, Drew. <laughs> oh yeah, my lord. Um, I think. Um, yeah, uh, heads up. Don't worry if you lose people. Your cancer isn't about them. Just do what you can and you will have amazing loved ones on the other side that will hopefully be able to have an emotionally mature conversation with you about 
their pain and my pain. And if not, that's okay. Let them go. Being non-monogamous is amazing during cancer. <laughs> um, having two partners as carers uh, was incredible and also having my partners care for each other was a really wonderfully um, comforting experience mm. knowing that my partners were, had other partners to, you know, have self-care and mm. debrief and slip out of carer role and have love and affection with someone that wasn't, you know, the cancer patient. That was that was really amazing. I'm so grateful as well for the partner that's not here. Um, if you're listening, thank you so much for everything you did. Yeah, I guess that's that's probably it. Oh, yeah, and um, also, am I speaking to myself? Tess, no one does cancer well. Get off your back. <laughs> Just chill out. Oh my god, classic future test. <laughs> classic. Yeah. So blunt. Mm. So direct and bold. Mm. <laughs> Buy more lube. <laughs> Sliquid. Sliquid silver. Mets? Mm. Yeah. Um, so to people so that so the people that are discovering that they have the di- diagnosis. Um, so obviously there's like a million little bits of advice, but if we're just talking about sex and relationships, uh, I would say that the medical system is unlikely to give you good advice or any advice about sexuality. But if you ask, um, that may work out well. And if you do your own research, that might work out well. And to partners of people who have got a cancer diagnosis, I would say um, even though you probably don't think that your ego is tied up in sex, Mm -hmm. get ready to not take it personally when sex is not there and to realise that it's not about you. Mm. Um get supports around that, like whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous, get supports around that. Um, And also to both of you, um, set up systems to manage communication links. You you cannot cope with the number of people that are going to have inquiries and then also the number of people that will drop off um, after the first I don't know, six months of drama. Mm. Um, so get ready for both to, both of those polarities. Um, I set up two groups on, on a popular social media platform, one for close people that needed regular daily updates and one for a wider network of people. And, God, it made stuff easier. Mm. That was my saving grace. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Drew, your answer. What so is it? What do I wish I knew before? Mm-hmm. Um, just something that there's probably a few things, but it's just something that others have kind of touched on. I think is a th- that I think is a bit of a theme is that not to be concerned that other people will make it about them in one way, shape, or form. Um, and that took some adjustment 
Um, and that, yeah, there will, you know, people will genuinely surprise you in good ways and bad. Um, people that sometimes that you least expect it. Um, but communication, I think communication about a whole stack of different things as it relates to um, communicating within relationship, communicating about the treatment, the cancer. We were just talking earlier tonight, you know, about things <laughs> neither of us knew the other was jerking off in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe yeah. you just discovered that. <laughs> you know, so... Um, so yeah, having being having a strong communication platform, and I think that was something that I learned after. Not something I think I did. I definitely did. Was learn after after the fact was was about um, was about better communication, clear and consent, and what that means in a in a hospital context, and that's something I've learned more about, again, after the fact, not at the time, and because, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's the jokes about check your dignity at the door. Well, it shouldn't have to be that way. Um, You know, you shouldn't have to check your dignity at the door. You should still be able to maintain your dignity um, through people asking you more, we're going to do this thing, are you ready for this thing now? Um, not rather than just like when you, yeah, when you enter the hospital, you sign the thing that they say you now have given us informed consent and they go and do what the hell they like with you basically is how they treat you. Um, so yeah, it's about how to better, you know, if I, I would like to have known perhaps how better to advocate for my own self and my consent within that environment to be more empowered, I think. Mm. Um, not in what happened to me because, you know, what happened to me was right. It was probably how it happened rather than what happened, um, mm. I think. Yeah, that's my mm. answer. So, so thank you. Nice. I, I keep thinking about connection and physical connection and, and, and what I wish I'd known back then was that there were ways of, of connecting with another human that that don't that can be quite intensely physical and sexual, but don't have to be about penises and vaginas. And and I wish we'd we'd thought about or even known if we'd had a language to even discuss what intimacy might have looked like while you while you had cancer. That would have been incredibly helpful. I wish even if we'd looked at massage, if we'd looked at, um, you know, touching in, in a way that, that didn't feel like you were toxic or that, that I was going to hurt you or, you know, for a time um, uh, when, when your hair starts to fall out, your, your follicles become really sore. They're like, 
They're so sore because oh, it's not just it's not just the hair falling out, which is distressing in its own way. It's the fact that you end up with this folliculitis and the fact that the hair keeps growing. No one tells you this. You just think it falls out, but it keeps growing. And as it keeps growing, you get little infections in your skin and it's really unpleasant and uncomfortable. And so just touching someone and having your skin feel different isn't very nice. And so it would have been nice to have had a, a different kind of body language that we could have negotiated at that point that would have been restoring and, and would have been connecting and stuff like that. So I, I, I'm glad that I know the things I do now about negotiating touch. For example, the two-minute game so would have been helpful way back then. And it would have been a great way of managing stress because everyone knows that orgasms and touch and those kinds of engagements with other humans gives us good feelings and everyone needs good feelings when they're negotiating cancer. Mm. Um, So I wish I'd had some language and knowledge around that stuff to Mm. negotiate at that time. Can I, like, drop in that um, one of the... I don't know, ideas behind the two-minute game is that it doesn't need to look anything like traditional or stereotypical sex or it doesn't need to even involve taking clothes off. Um, It's just a question of, like, trusting your imagination and your intuition and your creativity of, like, what would you like for two minutes? And it's very different when you're deep in the middle of chemo to what Mm. it is when you're on drugs at a festival. Mm. Um, But all answers are perfect. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it would have been lovely to have known that. So, I don't know, what do you, what do you, how about something like, what are you, what are you grateful for around your cancer experience or, I don't know, like, should we finish on an, on a positive, like, what is something positive that cancer has taught you? Hmm. Hmm. Is it really cliche to finish on? I like it. Growth. Hmm. Um, I'm like, this is not quite your exact wording of the question, but I'm glad it turns out that we're just like a bunch of dickheads who can have a laugh and take a piss, <laughs> even at the worst of times, <laughs> and who, um, love a good sex. Like we really do love a good sex, but turns out is not dependent on it. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. I'm wondering if loving a good sex, is that like being on the Facebook? (laughs) (laughs) I got that down off the load. (laughs) Oh, I also use the interweb. (laughs) We call it the information (laughs) superhighway. Surfing the internet. Surfing the internet. Goodness me, we're all showing our age now. Um, I'll just fire up my Apple (laughs) 2 C. I've just got my Commodore 64 out back. Uh, (laughs) Um... Oh, look, there's it's heaps, actually, to be quite honest, that I'm grateful for. Um, it's weird, you know, I've, I've felt this for a long time now that I don't think I'd change my life. Um, if someone could say I'd wait. And I'm fortunate, right? I'm, I'm in a position where <clears throat> I'm in, still in remission. My long-term prognosis is, is good. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Um grateful for the fucking medical people who made that happen um who are also grateful for giving me the skills to navigate covid um Mm. 
because that's been pretty helpful. Um, but yeah, there's not. It's it's become part of my life. It's become part of me, and it's it actually I feel that it made me a better person through improving the way I communicated and related with people. I think that I think that's been a massive change in my life, and I don't. And that's definitely something I wouldn't take back. And that would be something that would have to go if that never happened. Ever happened to me? Yeah, that's my answer. Hmm. Mine's mine's very similar, actually. I I feel in a sense that. Um, Life is is precarious and difficult and challenging and essentially short. Um, so some of the things I'm grateful for, I guess, is the opportunity to realise that if I don't seize the day, then there's nothing. So I, I, I guess I, I feel very similarly to Andrew that it's important to live your life, to seize the day, to make things count. Mm-hmm. Um and I think, in a sense, relating to people, that has changed. For me, I feel I don't hesitate. If I'm fond, I'll tell people I'm fond. If I love them, I tell them I love them. I don't hesitate because there may not be a tomorrow. Um, and I don't say that in a, in a terribly fearful way. I, I say it in a very loving way because I feel like um, that's, that's what um, death and the threat and the fear of death does to people. It gives us a much grander appreciation of life and wonderful things. So, yeah, I think that's what it's done for me. When I was possibly terminal, I remember I was, it's like 7.40 in the morning. I was sitting at my desk at a very uh, public hospital in Melbourne in um, working in neurological rehab and I hadn't told anyone like I was still working full-time trying to you know I was sitting at my desk and I was like all right so I might die in within the like by the end of the year or possibly by the end of the next year and I just sat at my desk and I I actually remember this so vividly it was still dark outside it was like Melbourne winter um and I I just realized I have had the best life like my whole, I've travelled the world. I've had, you know, I've worked in a circus overseas. I've done bank mergers in Europe, and you know, like all the weird, weird, crazy stuff. And then what cancer did for me was that, in you know, like festival hopping globally and just having a ball. But like now, it's it's rather than I think maybe because I've already done so many things I wanted to do, like, you know, raising monkeys in the jungle, like childhood dream. I already did that stuff. So now it's shifted from, like, self-gratification or, like, self-experience and pleasure, like, and experiencing the world. I've already done that. So now it's like I'm going to help others and I'm going to leave a mark. And so I'm just so passionate about helping people through disability and cancer and intimacy and sexuality. Like I just want to, I think maybe because we found it, I found it so hard and I have all of this training. Imagine like, I can't imagine how hard it is for other people. So I just really, I just want to help, you know? And so I guess like, that's my, that's the shift rather than, oh God, screw working full time ever again. What a waste of life. I still work a lot of hours, but I do it, you know, when I can. And I, you know, because I have to have rest breaks and the fatigue. And um, so, yeah, 
less work but more passionate work and it's a, it's definitely I want to I want to help people two couples with cancer walked into a bar <laughs> thanks game Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures. We work with the world in the areas of sexuality, self-development and relationships. We achieve this by doing the following five things. One, we offer pre-recorded workshops that you can watch at any time in the privacy of your home. Two, we run online live workshops. Three, we run in-person workshops, mostly in Australia. Four, I offer counselling, specialising in the things you hear me talking about on this podcast. And five, we make our famous consent cards, which you can view for free online or purchase pretty cheaply. You can find out about all of these things at curiouscreatures.biz. The best way to stay in touch regarding workshops is to sign up to our free monthly mailing list. And we also have a forum for you to interact with other listeners of this podcast and the Curious Creatures community about all sorts of things. Go to forum.curiouscreatures.biz. And lastly, if you can think of anyone else that might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. My name is Rog. You're awesome. This episode was mixed by Aman Dembla, and thanks for listening. <laughs>